0: Coming up this week on the show:
1: When your methodology becomes your theology, your ecclesiology becomes a pathology, and you know we got to be careful about the how. And, and I would just point out to you, from my perspective, this gotten me in the hot water with some people for saying this. So forgive me right up front, but Jesus did not inf- did not teach a lot of methodology. He taught a little bit when he said, you know, when he said something like this: by you know, by this all men will know that you are my followers if you share the Jesus film. You know, he was telling them to go out and share the Jesus film, right? No, he was saying, You're going to know that you're my disciples by having love for one another.
0: We dialogue with Ted Essler about movements. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think. Thinkers Go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE. joined by my old friend Scott Dunford, Pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, and West Coast Advancement Coordinator with ABWE. And we're glad you're here as well. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the fun places where you follow people. And remember to share the show with a friend, leave us a positive rating and a five-star review in your podcast platform of choice. That's how we help get this content in front of others who can be blessed by it. Scott, uh, we've covered some interesting topics lately. You know, one of the things that we covered recently was liturgy. Uh, I'm actually throwing this out at you. We didn't talk about this before recording or anything like that. But did you ever think
2: you'd see the day that we tackled a topic like that with this platform? I never saw the day when I'd even be thinking about a word like liturgy as a Baptist. So, no, I didn't think we'd be talking about things like that. Allergic to it potentially, right? For, for and and I grew
0: up in the Calvary Chapel movement, so we're we're allergic to things like that. Our our liturgy is, you know, Hawaiian shirts and and CCM. Um that's that, you know, those are our our priestly garments is the yes. Hawaiian shirt deal, right? Well, and Pastor Chuck, yes. It, pa- Papa Chuck,
2: Papa Chuck. Uh,
0: we actually got some great feedback from a listener of ours who's a Baptist church planter in Dublin, Ireland. Um, I'm going to, let's see, and apologize if if I'm mispronouncing your name, but Cormac Walsh um, is the individual that reached out to us. And Cormac shared some uh, feedback and, and some concerns, actually, that maybe we were being um, a little bit too hospitable towards some practices that would be, um, associated with uh, Roman Catholicism, actually. And uh, so we, we talked about that. We had dialogued um, a little bit about that. But uh, anyway, he shared that he's a faithful, frequent listener to the podcast. And, and he talked about the regulative principle of worship. Now, that's three big words right there. And uh, Cormac and I have been having a conversation by email of how do we treat Scripture as being the thing that regulates, that defines what should be done, and then anything that's not prescribed, we're not going to do. How do we apply that in worship? How do we apply that in our methodology as missionaries and as people engaged in gospel work around the world? Um, the reason I bring that up, Scott, is that kind of ties in with the conversation we're going to have today about methodology. And I don't want to couch it just around that principle, because there's different approaches that, to that principle. You can, you can maybe hold on too tightly to that and become imbalanced, um, but it, it really does come down to this central question of what does scripture say to do? And then what do we want to try doing? And where where are the lines of creativity there and how much can we color outside the lines or or what is scripture explicitly
2: said to do in making disciples? I I, I like that. I <laughs> I was wondering where you're going. Um, frankly, I was like, we have a topic we're talking about, and it is not the regulative principle, and I am wholly unprepared oh, to but talk it about is. that. So um, I, I like the way you segued that, Alex. And um, Oh, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm excited about our guests. We've had Ted Essler on before, and we talked about his his book that had just come out on innovation. And uh, he was graciously was willing to come back on and join us to talk about something that we're kind of tired about talking about. But I don't think it <laughs> ne- should stop being talked about because we do want to have more. Um, we want to have heat and light, I guess, on on a topic. Yeah. And uh, so we, we Ted Essler is back with us. He's the president of Missio Nexus. Uh, an organization that that represents over thirty thousand kingdom workers around the globe, um, and a huge resource for mission agencies. Um, but also, he has a background in mission, serving in the Balkans um, during a really crucial time in the '90s. Worked with pioneers for a number of years in leadership. So, Annie, he's got his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary, which is you know wh- wh- whether you agree with all the things that are being said at Fuller or not, is clearly one of the leaders and and developers of of terminologies and thought processes about missions. And so Ted, we're so glad to have you come on the show. We're going to talk about this topic of, of disciple making movements and movement theology in general. And, um, can we find some ground of how Christian missionaries can work together and even get terms defined in a way that we all can agree on. And so welcome to our show. Thanks for coming back on Ted.
1: It's good to be here and I look forward to the discussion and, uh, that's an interesting intro. I agree with the regulative principle and its application of missiology is uh it's it's not a bad starting point.
2: Alex is a pretty smart guy and uh you know I appreciate him <laughs> setting us up that way. That was good. So yeah, I was well, talking- you know, with this
0: whole with this whole conversation they say in FM radio that as soon as a DJ is tired of hearing a song that's the right amount that it should be played for the audience, that's how much they want to hear it. And I think something is true for this conversation as well. Scott and I, as the hosts, feel like we've talked about methodology and disciple-making movements before, and we'll have to define that in a moment. Uh, But for many of our listeners, these are real, and it's right in front of their face, and and the time to talk
2: about it is now. And there's a lot of—it's probably the number one thing when we see people and they— Um, our listeners to the show or they're thinking about missiology and they know that we're doing this kind of a program, they want to talk about this. So I think it's certainly not something that at least in the circles we're running in is, has kind of run its course. Um, But I want to pitch a question to you, Ted, um, rather than just Alex and I talking about this. So clearly there's a lot of controversy about, this whole idea of movement. I remember sometimes just seeing that word and just thinking, Oh, you know, yeah, movement. That's a good thing. It's like a herd of Buffalo all running in one direction. we want to see momentum. We want to see things take off. We want to see lots of churches being planted or lots of disciples being made. And yet um, the, the, the term movement when it's used in missiology is a, is a bit more specific and technical than just, uh, you know, a migration of people or a large a number of people coming to, to Christ. Um, what, what do you think is at the heart of this debate? And do you think it's even solvable? I mean, are we wasting our time even talking about it? And, uh, you know, I'm just curious as you think about this idea of movements like is there a outcome as a mission leader and especially a global mission leader uh, that is uh, a good outcome to this discussion?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, w- I would just start by saying that at the heart of the discussion are what I would say are a number of definitions that we would need to talk through, uh, because
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I when I think about the classic definition of a movement, in, in other words. So, so movement theory comes out of secular sociology, modern movement theory in the secular world, all right? And so a lot of the language, a lot of the ways that we think about it come out of secular sociology. Interestingly, though, kind of the first big study on movement happened in a network of churches in Minneapolis by University of Minnesota researchers, And so they were studying movements, but they were studying religious movements. Now, I didn't know this at the time because I was a young, rebellious little teenage kid, but my mom was involved in the very movement that they studied at the University of Minnesota many decades ago, uh, back in the 70s. It was a charismatic movement in mainline Lutheran churches. Hmm. And they began to look at what about... I'm sorry?
0: I've seen it all now.
1: Yeah. They were trying to figure <laughs> out why Why is this movement growing inside this Lutheran church? And they kind of came up with these principles. And I would say, very interestingly, when Garrison wrote his book, and I don't think he even knew about that study or tried to associate it. A lot of the things that he talked about were also captured in that sociological study. So, you know, just out of the gate, uh, we're using language that it would, I would consider to be It's not biblical language. It's extra biblical language. It's trying to describe a phenomenon. Uh, You know, we're not going to drill down on Greek words to talk about movements. You know, on the other hand, clearly the New Testament, what we see happen in the New Testament fits almost anybody's definition of movement. A few years ago, I won't mention who wrote it, but somebody wrote an article. There's no movements in the New Testament or there's no movements in the Bible. And I saw that title and I scratched my head and I thought, you know, that's all I, that's all I like saying, there's no trees in the forest. Because in the first century, the church was growing by any measure at a movement pace. And many of the things that the sociologists or even David Garrison talked about were happening in that New Testament era. I think where we get into trouble and I think where the heart of the debate is, is when we begin to insist on a definition that's above and beyond generalities when mm. we ask people to perform or do methodologies that are above generalities mm. and, and that's happened in the movement camp. You know, I think they've become prescriptive, you know, you, it's formulaic, mm. Mm. Um, you know, and I, and that's like where the real breakdown comes from. Sure. Um, that, that's actually an equal opportunity problem though. <laughs> sure. Because those that push back People that push back against it and say, no, it's this methodology, in many ways they're doing the same thing. They're saying you got to do these things, and those things are not necessarily taken out of the pages of Scripture either. So I think really at the heart of it comes, my my sense is that the, the biggest issue comes when we try to define things above and beyond what Scripture will bear. And I do think that you see that in the movement camp to some extent. But you also see it in the critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let me go back to your, your, your friend in Ireland and just say that, um, you know, I worked in a Catholic country for a number of years, very Catholic, one of the most Catholic countries in the world. And I remember being in a Catholic church. And in that church, there's, uh, you know, they have statue, statues and they have these little creches. And on one side of the creche was Jesus hung on a cross and directly across from him was Mary hung on a cross. And what what stuck out to me well, seeing that is how Protestant my view of Catholicism is because I have a Protestant, I come from a Protestant uh, culture. I don't necessarily grasp the extent with Catholic to which Catholicism has grasped uh, Christianity, but. That guy living in Ireland, he probably has a very different perspective on it. Mm. And I would just say that another problem in the discussion and maybe at the heart of it is we are here in a U.S. context. And if you're a U.S. pastor listening to this, I'm I'm sorry to say this because it sounds like I'm dismissive. I'm not at all of pastors in the U.S. But in many ways, we don't really have the ability to understand it through the eyes that a missionary on the field might be seeing their situation. So.
0: Well, and I'll and oh, shut good up. Thing I'm sorry. Up that was long. <laughs> no, 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 not no. at all. You're the guest. Um, th- that is a good thought to pick up on, though, because one of the problems that I've run into, um, and I think this is probably a burden that Scott and I share. I don't want to speak for Scott exclusively, but uh, is, is that because of what you just described, right? Well, you haven't been on the field and we, and we can't necessarily appreciate everything that missionaries see firsthand. I think there's a lot of pastors in the States. An informed layman and chairman of missions committees, and and uh, faithful uh, believers that understand their Bibles, that are intimidated by the conversation yeah. and don't know how to enter into it because they're like, oh well, I don't have the toolbox to to analyze this. And uh, it's my heart that somebody with the Word of God in hand, right, that with the sufficiency of Scripture, can can at least uh, analyze things through that lens. So. And and I'm not afraid of extra biblical terminology, right? I, I, some people get afraid of that. Hey, the word Trinity is extra biblical, right? So I, well, I the think there's validity to the extra Where biblical terminology. On, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. We have to systematize. We have to ascribe words to things. So let's let's start with definitions, and let's see um, what how we build on that foundation. So, what are some of the basic features of disciple making movements? and church planting movements, because maybe those are different things. Uh, assuming not all of our listeners uh, have deeply dived into that to know the technical definitions of these terms.
1: Well, let me just say that uh, kind of the general, what I understand to be the general understanding of church planting movements, the general understanding would be Garrison's definition, uh, which is essentially the, the planting of indigenous churches, planting other churches, in a specific population group or people group. And I think he would include in that, I don't, I don't hold me to account for this, but I think he would include the word rapid. So he's talking about speed, at least in the original definition. I think some of that has changed over time. So that's the general definition. But then you have various streams within the movement world. And the two big, the two big ones that I would say have to do with, when you actually introduce the person of Christ to somebody, so one stream, and this is kind of the mm. training for trainers or T for T movement, they would say you share uh, you share Christ in the very first meeting, and you know the people that are responsive are going to are going to respond, and that's how they move forward. The disciple making movement group is very different. They would say no, they don't know what they're converting to, so you need to lay a foundation first, and you need to. Uh, Get them in the word, and and actually, a lot of the critiques about movements, they pluck the negatives from both of those models, but put them together as it's one critique. But when you're critiquing, for example, non-believers studying the scriptures, which happens in disciple-making movement methodology, you're actually not critiquing the T for T movement people. So, what, what tends to happen here is all of these variances and nuances kind of get conflated. Let me just give you an example of why this kind of stuff can matter on the field. Yeah. So one time I visited a field where it's a big Muslim people group. They're highly unreached. And some, somebody there that was working as a missionary came across what they thought was a very spiritually open person. And they immediately began to share a very simple gospel message using, I don't know, four spiritual laws or something like that with this person. Their supervisor, who is a DMM or a disciple-making movement proponent, he said, you did the wrong thing. That person has no idea what you mean when you share the four spiritual laws with them. What you're going to do is you're going to inoculate them to the truth of who Jesus is. And a conflict emerged between those two missionaries about the best way forward with this individual who expresses some spiritual openness. mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, that's where these things, to us, they're theories, but the people on the ground, that's one of the problems with being a missionary yeah. is you can't just talk about stuff. You actually have to do stuff. And as soon as you do something, you're actually infusing meaning into your message and how you're going about doing it. Sure. And so you're stepping in on landmines all the time just by doing stuff um, and, and potentially creating problems. But but for sure, these definition issues are part I think of why if you were if you are a pastor here in the US and you're not exposed to these kind of things and you start hearing about this conflict between these two missionaries for example that's a real head scratcher without the bigger context
2: and and into that context you have these you know I I grew up in a in a fundamental baptist church we went door knocking every single week you know and we were very much trained on how to knock on a door and Asked someone if they wanted to go to heaven or hell, and once they said they did not want to go, it, so they, they, we we knew that they knew something yep. about heaven and hell. And then we said, "Would you like to know how you can go to heaven and not go to hell?" And then we immediately led them into the opportunity to pray a sinner's prayer, and it it really presupposed. Um, it, it, I don't know that it was effect. It was not effective then, although obviously we all have examples of people who came to Christ who or through that kind of presentation. God uses those things, but it presupposes a lot of stuff like that. They know who heaven is. They know what hell is that they would understand something about God and Jesus that is vaguely right. biblical. And 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 so we sometimes hear these hear these missions presentations put out and go like, well, that's what we did. <laughs> like, that's how I came to Jesus. And we don't understand like, well, um, these are people that have no concept of the biblical Jesus or no concept of biblical God. And and uh um, well, yeah, it's that, even that can worse be hard for that. pastors to weigh into that. Yeah.
1: If it's a if it's a Muslim background person, they've actually been taught falsehood about Christ. Right. Right. And so it's even worse than not having any idea. It's you have to sometimes deconstruct what's in their heart and their mind.
0: And and this is where I think the three of us have common ground is that we're all in favor of healthy contextualization. We all agree that the uh, the solution to whatever problems there are in DMM uh, is not to simply come in with this ham-fisted one-size-fits-all um, for spiritual laws style of presentation into some of these contexts where there's not, you know, what missiologists might call like a plausibility structure for a Christian worldview. Right? They they don't have uh, the building blocks to make sense of. You know, you could you could stand on a soapbox and and Proclaim John three sixteen, but you're going to lose them uh, on the second word, right? For God, and you'll lose them on that word potentially. So, uh, I I think something that we likely hold in common is, you know, things like chronological Bible study are fundamentally good. Preaching from Genesis to Revelation, showing that there's here's this narrative, narrative here's this history of how all of all of redemptive uh, history and God's workings are pointing to Christ and are and are fulfilled in him. And it takes time to unpack that. And it's not always in the first conversation.
1: No, I, I totally agree with that. And, and I think this is kind of where the DM members have gotten themselves in trouble with certain camps in, in the sense that they get people into studying the scriptures before they're believers, and they're expecting them a lot of times to obey those scriptures and the fear is, well, they're giving them a false sense of salvation by asking them to obey what they read. They're, you know, But what they're trying to do is they're trying to lay the foundation that when you read something in the Bible, this is a serious text. You need to do what it says. And they're trying to provide that broader context where, you know, on the t for t side of things, because they're often just sharing Christ right out of the gate, I don't really think that context is there. So I tend personally to think that the DMM provides a better overall model than the T for T option does. But there's there's issues on what it, again. I don't care what your methodology is. Um, you're gonna, and you've probably heard me say this before. But when your methodology becomes your theology, your ecclesiology becomes a pathology. Mm. And you know we got to be careful about the how. I, and, and I would just point out to you, from my perspective, this has gotten me in the hot water with some people for saying this, so forgive me right up front, but Jesus did not inf—did not teach a lot of methodology. He taught a little bit. Mm-hmm. When he said, you know, when he said something like this, by, you know, by this, all men will know that you are my followers if you share the Jesus film. You know, he was yeah. telling them to go out and share the Jesus film, right? No, he was saying, <laughs> you're going to know that you're my disciples by having love for one another. Mm-hmm. So there's some very broad methodology in the New Testament and we get into trouble when we start saying, well, we see this pattern here. So now it's, it it becomes the regulative principle for how you do something. And I think that's where the breakdown comes with some people.
2: So I I want to come back to something we touched on, but I, and I think we all understand this, but I'm not sure all of our listeners would um, because the, it seems to me that one of the big features of movement thinking isn't um, yeah, there's these different, different uh, ways it can be done, but like a a key part of that is the idea of like rapid and kind of spontaneous growth that at some point uh, something catches fire. Hopefully the Holy spirit catches fire and that something very rapid and large is taking place. Um, would, Would you agree with that? that that's kind of sets it apart from from other discussions about non movement related missions
1: uh I do think the proponents, especially in the early days, like if you go back to two thousand eight to two thousand fifteen or so, I think they really pressed hard on that rapid piece, but I think they've also backed off some because I think mm. they've begun to see the problems with mm. um when you when you think there's going to be some kind of pacing or speed uh, to what you're doing so i I don't think as much anymore but a lot of the number reporting would lead me to believe that that still is the case so you know i'm not sure i don't hear it from the proponents but i do see it in some of the the things they communicate about movements
2: alex did you want to jump in because i have a a follow-up to that too yeah follow up and then i'll take it
0: in a different direction
2: yeah and the other the other part that i'm seeing um quite a bit in literature and I even hear from just in discussions as I'm, as I'm around uh, missionary types is, is the idea of decentralization. So a lot less focus on a dependence on a teacher, uh, a missionary per se, or, or some leader that is the, the one responsible for teaching and training and discipling and a lot of kind of like get them in the word and let the Holy spirit be, kind of the main leader and discipler. And whereas in the States and even in the traditional missionary models, you would have a long ramp up. You know, I've got a young man in my church, love him, respect him. He's super gifted. I think he's a keen mind and we're really slow to lay hands on him because we just all have our experiences of, you know, 25 year olds, uh set on fire with with not a lot of seasoning and how dangerous that can be and yet it, it seems like that's kind of a big um emphasis in some of these models of like decentralized quickly quickly letting leaders form and emerge and letting them take it where where it would go is that is that an accurate uh, I think that's or accurate. am I missing something
1: No I think that's accurate and I and I think you know, we so again. This this has a bit to do with our context and how we contextualize. I think uh, you go back to the New Testament, and there's some pretty amazingly fast leadership put into place. And, and part of that, it's kind of like I, so. I have a when, and, when and the there's Amazon some problems window, that
0: arise pretty quickly in a lot of those churches in places like Corinth too. For the record, course, but yeah, say, say again. Uh, also, problems uh, arise pretty quickly no in places doubt like about Corinth. It. That's the
1: nature, yeah. I think, of sure. That's the nature of missionary work. Yeah. And, you know, I have a, I've got a first generation Amazon Kindle. I bought it the day it came out. Okay. It's a little white, goofy looking device. And I also have the latest Amazon Kindle. It's beautiful and it's gorgeous. It's in color. It does all sorts of things. The first one didn't do. Now, the second one is a far more sophisticated device and does a heck of a lot more than the first one did. Which of those two devices is the most revolutionary? Well, it's clearly the first one that created this new paradigm in publishing. And I think we got to think of uh, especially, you know, frontier pioneering missions like that. The team that does the first one is a different team that creates the last one, okay? The first one takes a team that's thinking way outside the box and doing some things nobody's ever done before in that context. But that second device, that's a device that's been developed by experts over time. The makeup of that team is very different. Similarly, when we do this kind of church planning, we got to be careful not to impress a U.S. grid uh, because we have a very mature, mature church environment here. Not always great, by the way. Not doing an awesome job of church planning, by the way. Uh, we got to be careful not to press that grid into that missions yeah. context. So yeah. I mean that'd be my response to that. I think you're you know, I think you're you're right about that.
0: So let me let me shift just slightly. You said something earlier. You said that Jesus doesn't give us a lot of methodology. And and I think um in large part that's actually true. Um I, I'm prepared to agree with that. Um in in fact, I, I actually think that um that's that's helpful for us to say from the outset because a lot of the texts that I've seen used to justify some of the methods that we're talking about are taken out of Jesus instruction to the 70 and some of those things in person of peace. And, and I I think there's a debate to be had over, you know, how much that's descriptive or prescriptive of what we should be doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but because you, you mentioned that and, and you said at the beginning too, that you'd affirm the regulative principle of worship. And and the reason I come back to that, Scott, I promise we're, I'm not dragging us down some theological rabbit hole, but I think it's relevant <laughs> here as we move to this next question, uh, because the regulative principle is this idea that what Scripture says to do, we do and we don't add to it, um, as opposed to something like the normative principle, which says, well, as long as Scripture doesn't say not to do it, then we're free to do it, right? And that's that's the distinction that we're getting at here, and it's subtle, but a lot hangs on that. The reason I say that is there's, there's a lot that I think we can, again, common ground agree on that scripture gives some playing room, some wiggle room. It gives us a lot of flexibility actually. Um, so I would be one of those proclamational guys, but I would say there's a lot of wiggle room within that, right? Proclamation can be over coffee or it can be from a soapbox or anywhere in between, right? There's there's a lot of room that that gives you. Um, there's a good John Owen quote that I was looking at this morning. Um, and, and if if you actually look at some of the historic um, confessions of the church, there's, there's a nod given to this um, problem of contextualization coming out of the Reformation. Uh, Owen, in particular, he writes, um, and this is exalted language, but hang on to these words. It is now otherwise with the people of God, be they never so poor and destitute of all outward accommodations. Are there assemblies in the mountains, in the caves and dens of the earth? Christ, according to his promises, in the midst of them is their high priest, and they have their worship, in their worship, all the order, glory, and beauty, observing gospel rules, that in any place under heaven they can enjoy and be made partakers of all. And he goes on from there. But this idea that the rules that Christ gives his church means that you can have church in a cave, or in dens, or on a mountain, or in a cathedral. That's essentially what he's saying there. And I think that that's critical. We're not talking about coming in and... um just superimposing, right. Uh, a, a Western, you know, fully funded building style um, of church planting yeah, I, in I some of these contexts. Yeah, yeah I, I, I do. I'm glad we agree with that. You know, I, I think there's a lot of common ground here. So all of that is a incredibly verbose way of setting up the next question, which is um, would you agree that we can get instructions on methodology, not just from what Jesus said, uh, what we see happening in the book of Acts, but specifically the way that the apostles understood Jesus, Jesus' final marching orders in the great commission. So looking through the book of Acts and seeing what did the apostles do as they arrive in a new context, um, public proclamation of the word. um, And a lot of that is front loading some of those more, you know, offensive uh, parts of the gospel message about Christ's identity, the nature of his work, right. The, The, the final judgment, you know, all those things being in view, you know, is that, um, prescriptive for us are we are we to interpret go and make disciples of all nations through the lens of what the apostles then went out and did and what you have them doing is is a lot of proclamation from place to place.
1: There's no doubt there's a lot of pro- proclamation happening and and I don't I mean I don't know any contemporary CPM advocates that says that say there should be no proclamation. In fact, a paper I just read published in the last three or four days talking about the place of proclamation in uh, movements is out there, I, you know, I would say, you gotta be careful not to make the same mistake that you just described when when you talk about, for example, taking the sending out of the 70 as normative for mission, and we should all be doing that because they're looking for the person of peace and we should all be doing that. That's taking an instance that happened. I'm not sure it's prescribed. I'm not sure it's commanded that way. Uh, to be that way. But we have people I say that are advocating that's how you do it. And to me, again, that's a little too much methodological press there. Um, The problem I would have or where I would say I would probably part from you when it comes to this proclamational push is that we as American Christians know almost no other model besides pastor on Sunday morning. And by the way, I just said couple of things there that are not scriptural, at least they're not opposed to scripture, but use of the word pastor for preacher-teacher is not biblical. I mean, it's not unbiblical, but it's not biblical. Um, standing up and teaching in front of a regular congregation is something you see very little of in the New Testament. Most of the proclamation, if we really want to put it on missionaries, most of the proclamation is missionary proclamation. It's Paul standing up in front of non-believers in teaching more of it than standing up in front of believers. Now again, I'm not opposed to any of that. I'm just saying that it's very it'd be very easy for us to drift over into thinking that, well, this is what we do here, so this is what we do. Um, I mean all these all these all of these developments you've talked about the reformation a bunch here. I love the Reformation. Last week, uh, you know, Reformation Day just happened, um, October 31st. And I love highlighting Reformation Day. And I have a little devotional I do with groups of leaders, and I ask them to name the five solas. And I'm shocked at how few can actually do it, because the Reformation is super important to us. But the Reformation was a reaction to what was happening in that cultural context you know, the five soul has covered almost nothing, really nothing about the Great Commission. And I could make that same argument, by the way, with the Nicene Creed, which was a reaction to Arianism. So, you know, I, I think some of what we're seeing with the movement piece here, I believe, is a reaction to 200 plus years of missionary tradition in which missionaries took the pastoral role that they're seeing on Sunday mornings and mostly copying it in the field. And so they're reacting to the fact that, hey, you know, we don't have to do what they did back then. And, and I'm pointing the finger at myself yeah. here because when I was a church planner. We had a Sunday morning service and I got up in front of everybody and I used that same Western model. So while I mm-hmm. agree with you that the reformers did call attention to the fact that worship can happen in all these various places, it's so rare that it happens in our context that I think we do have a little bit of a visceral and gut reaction that we shouldn't have, but it's there. And I, and again, I feel like I did the same thing. The first time I heard about movement stuff, I was like, Oh, come on. And I was an opposer. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or if it gets me in more hot water. Let me me just
0: ask. No, that's great, Ted. Thank you. Let me, let me ask a follow-up, um, so that we can, so that, you know, kind of how I'm approaching this. Um, by the way, I, I think that I could articulate and defend a stronger theology of Lord's Day worship and, and it, a lot of what you see happening in the church deriving from this synagogue model that God you know, allowed to arise between testaments, basically. But, but that's neither here nor there. This pattern that happens in the, in the book of Acts, um, Alan Thompson did a lot of good work on this in his um, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. And then a guy named Joel Hepner helped put this into some helpful charts. Um, so the, the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, that's um, in the, the New Testament Studies and Biblical Theology series. Um, Don Carson, one of the editors there. Um, but what, what he does is he goes through the book of Acts, and you see this pattern. Every time there's a, an evangelistic happening in the book of Acts, there's, there's an occasion, of course. There's the audience. There's an apostolic preacher. Um, It begins with God and who he is. Um, There are gospel events that are recounted. Then there's the benefits of uh, the response to those uh, events. And then there's a response that's required. So to walk you through that, um, you know, let's take Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, right? That's the occasion, everything that's happening. The audience is Jews from every nation. Peter is the apostolic preacher. Um, it begins with God. It talks about God's work in the last days, according to Joel. Um, the gospel events are are recounted. Um, then there's the benefits are held out. So the life, miracles, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father uh, is walked through. And then salvation, forgiveness, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit are held out. And then the response of repentance and baptism is is what's required at the end of that. And that pattern actually follows through throughout the New Testament. Um, Thompson goes and, and shows the same grid happening in Act 17, which we all tend to look at Act 17 and say, well, yeah, this is wildly different from what's happening earlier in the book. And look, Paul doesn't even mention the cross, but but every other piece of that is there, including um, assurance of salvation and judgment and then repentance and faith held out um, as the required response. And so uh, what are your thoughts on just using that as a as a grid? So, is is does that sound narrowly proclamational to you, or would you say, "Hey, DMM does well, is accomplishing this, maybe just in different social settings than what you would see in like a public, you know, outdoor um, preaching kind of context"?
1: I would probably lean more to your latter description, but I, but listen, I I got no problem with proclamation, and I would just say, if that's what you want to do, great, go to Riyadh, stand on the corner in Saudi Arabia and give that model a swing and see how you do. And and I think the 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 context of the New Testament Jewish culture it set the stage for so much of what happened in that environment that we again I would just say we should be really humble about seeing that I mean take Jesus teaching, okay? There's a fun there's a fun little book teach like Jesus. I forget who the author is right now but He talks about the style of teaching that Jesus did, whether he was talking in a a room full of people, which he did a lot, or if he talked to a whole group of people. But the thing that rises to the surface right away are all the questions he asked. He asked questions over and over and over and over. I, I have yet to sit in an American church and see somebody from the front of that church ask a question during a sermon in which they were really wanting people in the audience to answer. But that was the normative way that Jesus taught. So why are we using that as the, as the principle of guiding our teaching on a Sunday morning? So, uh,
0: I don't think there's any, I think you can be proclamational and Socratic. I, I, I don't see a problem with that. I think, so, I well, think that's a good so, point. I think that's where we tend to talk past each other. So I'm glad yeah, you raised that. So if what you're Socratic. saying is
1: proclamation, sure. proclamational is Socratic, um, you know, I'd, I'd be all on board. The other thing I would just like to point out is that in the in the book of Acts, particularly, I mean, the book of Acts is a challenge to us hermeneutically in many, many, mm-hmm. many ways. Okay, I just I've, all year long I've been reading through the book of Acts in my daily devotionals, and just marveling at all the things that happen in it. But the, the thing about the book of Acts that we don't see is the growth of the church not attached to the primary characters that were in it. When Paul showed up in Rome, there was already a thriving church there. We have no idea how that got started. So this is why I would say, you know, we got to take a chill pill about saying, this is how it happens every time. And, and again, I would say that for both sides. Um, and, I, and I would hope that movement practitioners, and I think they have, they've really gotten beat up on this a lot. And I hope they've metered their their message some because I do think you see a, a heck of a lot of proclamation um in the book of acts and you know if, if again, if someone's got that gifting and wants to try that in these various contexts, I'd say let's let's see it happen.
0: Hey listeners, we're going to pause this conversation with Ted Essler, president of Missio Nexus. Our full conversation with Ted Esler spanned about an hour and 20 minutes. We'll bring you the second half of that engaging dialogue next week. And we're thankful to Ted for joining us for that time. And we think it moves the conversation forward, so stay tuned. But until then, remember to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and leave a positive review and a five-star rating in your podcast app of choice. You can also get more content, including our past interview with Ted Esler, missionspodcast.com And while you're there, hit the support tab and let us know that you believe in the work that the show is doing. Your support helps us this time of year to offset the cost of bringing you the show. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. We are thankful for your listenership. And until next week,
1: thanks for listening.